But we're going to turn to scriptures together. So if you've got your Bible, would you like to prepare to do so? We're going Romans chapter 5. Continuing our journey here, we'll do our best to follow along with the, uh, the words from the back, testing out our words, people. But before we do anything else, let me pray. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you are in the midst of your people, not with any sense of reluctance, but you have committed your heart to us. As John proclaimed, you are our Emmanuel the God who has made his dwelling place amongst us. It's your desire and your delight. As you promised your disciples, you said, I'm I'm going, but the Holy Spirit, he will be with you. I will be with you even unto the end of the age. So we thank you for that promise. Lord, as we turn to your scriptures this morning, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. May we be the people that have fertile soil that have listening ears always to hear what it is that your spirit is saying and may your word go forth with power to accomplish all that you desire in us this morning for the glory of your name king jesus we pray just come and have your way amongst us more and more we hunger and we thirst for you for what only you can do king jesus we give you the glory the honor and the praise someone say amen Amen. Amen. All right. Well, let's grab our Bibles with a sense of readiness and expectation and anticipation. I tell you, I just have this growing sense of expectancy. I do. Just an excitement to see what the Lord would do. I believe as those who are called to follow the will of God, there should always be that sense of expectancy. What's around the corner? What does the Lord have in store for us? And to rest our faith, not on what we see, but to walk by faith and not by sight. Well, we're in this journey this year of the last kind of month or so, reading through, journeying through this incredible book of theology that Paul writes. And as we've seen, he he presents, he preaches, he proclaims with this urgency a message that matters, a power of the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for this is the power of God at work to save lives, to transform, to turn the right way up the world around, around us. This is the message that shines the light in the darkness. It's hope in the midst of hopelessness. It is the power of God unto salvation. So chapter 5, are you with me? Romans chapter 5, we're going to get your Bible reading in for today. can promise you that, so stick with me as we go through. But it starts, chapter 5, verse 1, with this word, therefore, which, of course, as all good Bible scholars know, if it's therefore, it's therefore a reason. And you can map out this book of Romans with the therefores. There's a couple of critical ones. We've seen one already. In chapter 3, as Paul has unfolded and begun this proclamation of the gospel, informing us, exhorting us, letting us know that there is a fundamental issue, that all nations and peoples are trapped in sin and selfishness, that the human heart and mind are fundamentally broken as we continually turn away to God and towards depravity, this tragic 
pro- progression away from his good intention. That none of us stand innocent or blameless before him. And yet chapter 3 is the first therefore. It's a very good therefore. But he says, therefore, God steps in as the just and the justifier and he makes a way where there was no way through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. This moment that is the center point, not only of the gospel, but all of human history. New life, new family, and a new future. So it gets us up to speed a little. So chapter 5, there's another therefore. And read this with me, the first verse. He says, therefore, since we have been, past tense, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now we'll pause there, it's not the end of the sentence and we will continue. So this is his proclamation. This is the therefore that we find ourselves in. It's a, it's a new season. It's a new era. It's a new epoch. That everything in this letter that we read, but everything in our lives and everything in human history is measured pre and post this incredible work of Christ on the cross as he made a way. Therefore, since you have been. This is his work. This is what it has accomplished. Since you have been justified. Since you have been. And so that's the important connection here for us. And as we read, since we've been justified, we have peace. And through him, we've obtained access by faith. That was our focus last time. What is this faith? Why is it by faith? What does faith mean? How is it outworked? And this is our focus this morning. Through him we've obtained access by faith into what? Into what? Into this grace in which we now stand. Where are you standing this morning? If you are in Christ, you are standing in a place called grace. That's where we live. That's our new dwelling place. It's our new habitation is this place called grace. I'm going to unpack that this morning. C.S. Lewis very famously, many years ago, was at a a British conference on comparative religions. There was many debates and discussions happening about different worldviews, different faiths. And he stood up in the middle as he was asked, what is it? Of course, C.S. Lewis was an atheist who found Christ and became a very prominent believer, a wonderful theologian, and just had a way to express and unpack the riches of the gospel. But he stood up in the midst of that. And he said, well, it's easy, the difference between Christianity and every other worldview or philosophy. And it's one word. And it's simply this. It's the word grace. That was his summary. Philip Yancey, in his book from uh, 20, 20 or so years ago, he said this. You do not need to be a Christian to build houses, to feed the hungry, or even heal the sick. There's only one thing that the world cannot do. It cannot offer grace. So you see that the weight that not only Paul, but that we should put upon this reality of grace. And so the question for us this morning is, well, what is it? What is this thing called grace? What is this place that Paul says we now live? This place that by faith we have gained access to. 
How does it shape the wonder? Remember, that's what we're in need of, this theology that fuels our doxology, that opens our eyes to the, the grace and the majesty of Christ and who he is. How does it fuel the way that we live? How does it make any impact on that? And how does it shape the message, this wonderful message of the gospel that we preach and proclaim? So that's the introduction. That's our desire this morning to try and unpack this a little bit. So back into Romans 5, we're going to move through the chapter, but just before we do, as I often like to do, let's skip to the end. I'm known as a, a tragic for always wanting to know the bottom line. You know, it's like that. You read a book, I'm like, well, let me just flick to the last page. I just want to find out what happens, just to make sure it's worth reading the rest and all the bits in the middle. But this is an important parenthesis. So chapter 6, this is where we're going to land this morning as we read through this. And Paul is continuing. He's talked about this place called grace. And he says, what shall we say then? Remembering he continues to ask these questions as he goes through these rhetorical, hypothetical questions. What should we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And of course, he very quickly answers his own questions, by no means. What's he saying there? He's saying there should be something if we've truly grabbed a hold of what Paul is saying and proclaiming. Something so radical, something so wild, something so freeing, that it's almost like his grace is so good, so why wouldn't we just keep on sinning? Because that's what we find in the midst of our mess. Why wouldn't we just keep on? Because the more we sin, the more his grace is available. It's almost a little scandalous. And of course, he quickly answers his own question and say, well, no, that's not the intention at all. And we'll unpack that next week as we move forward. But I mentioned that for this reason. See, it's sometimes said, well, we should be careful emphasizing grace. We should not emphasize it too much because we might encourage people to sin. That might be their logical conclusion. Well, I can do whatever I want. I can live whatever way I like. I'd make a couple of observations to that particular statement. Number one, people don't seem to need any encouragement in sinning. That's not the problem. Just look on the news, look around you. We don't seem to need any help in that regard. The help that we do need is dealing with the sin problem that we already have. And that's where we fundamentally need to grab a hold of this incredible place called grace. So we're going to unpack and explore that. And hopefully if we've done it right, if we've really grabbed a hold of what Paul is saying, it's almost like we should be asking that question. It's, it's so amazing. It's so incredible. It's almost like we should continue sinning because the more we sin, the more we just experience and encounter and find afresh His grace. And then, of course, as we go on next week, we'll find out that it shapes the way that we live in other radical ways. So with those parentheses, let's jump in. Chapter 5, we said through Him, this is verse 2, we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And I love this. And it says, And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, not just in the hope of the glory of God. Grab this. We rejoice in our sufferings. Okay, there's, there's, a, there's a radical thought. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, 
It's an incredible passage. It's, it's hard not to just camp there. We easily could, but we're going to come back to some of these themes. I simply want to make this statement as we go through. See, Paul is setting up for us here. He's building towards this unshakable foundation that as believers we build our lives upon. We're armed for trials. We're armed for struggle. Why? Because there is this reality. There is this truth that God is who he said he is, that he has come, that he is faithful, and that he has made a way. If ever we're in need of hope, where do we go? We go back to that unshakable foundation. So we live in an age and a time, don't we, where the world says this, really the, the mission of your life is to feel your way into some version of truth. You're confused, we understand that, so here's it, just look inside, find a version of truth that kind of just feel your way into some notion of truth. Now that is the opposite for us as believers. I mean, it's a self-defeating argument anyway, because truth has to have some sort of foundation. And if your feelings are your foundation, then by definition, you're only going to end up finding more feelings. Just a subjective experience. But for us as believers, there is this objective truth that changes everything. That's what Paul's saying up front. There is this moment where God himself stepped through. That forever and through whatever, through suffering and trials, there is a place that you can go to. Not within to feel yourself into something that feels good. You look to Jesus. You look to the cross, you look to what he has done, the blood-bought gift that stamps your life with value and worth and purpose. See, we don't feel our way into believing. We believe our way when we need it in the midst of trial and suffering into feeling. Does that make sense? We stand on the truth. And at that place, the hope that we have in him, it never disappoints because his spirit, his love is poured into his heart. We have this unshakable everlasting fountain of joy and peace based on the reality of who he is, that unshakable truth. There's a message there for another day. Let's move on or I'll get stuck. So two examples then after this foundation. We've been justified through faith. We access, we live in this place called grace. Two examples that he gives us to illustrate what that is. One is, if you like, a personal example. One is a Universal example, verse 6, it says, For while we were still weak, so he's unpacking again the gospel, what it means for us. We were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Just so we're clear, in case you haven't been around, that's me and that's you, right? That's not the people out there doing all the bad stuff. That's, that's us. He died for us. For one scarcely will die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, grab this, while we were still sinners. Literally, the translation means while we were in the act of sin, in the throes. While we were, we'd made no effort to clean up our own mess and act. And yet, in the midst of that place, Christ died for you. And he died for me. Since then, we've been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God, for if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 
So it's this personal reality. He's saying, recognize this. We were weak. We deserve nothing. We were literally in the throes of sinning and turning away from a holy God. And yet, despite that rejection and rebellion, God stepped in. He gave, and our response in verse 11 is we rejoice in God through Jesus Christ as we receive his reconciliation. That's it. What did you do? We rejoice and we receive. That's all we do. We didn't work for it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. We just rejoice and receive his free gift of grace. That's the personal application. Now he's going to talk about a broader setting. It's not just for us. It's for all of humanity. Verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, sin leads to death. We'll pick that thing up next week. So death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, this, this is the disease of sin. No one's spared. It's not certain categories. It's not certain types of people. We've covered this already. But he's saying, remember that picture. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Let's jump down to verse 15. And I want you to notice in here two phrases. Free gift and grace. Free gift literally meaning a free gift. Grace means favor bestowed as a free gift. So different nuances to the same reality. Have a look at this. It says, but, that's, that's, that's the condition. Sin has spread like a cancer from Adam to now and beyond. All of us are guilty. Death has spread to all men because all have sinned. But, don't you love those moments? But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died, this is verse 15, through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 16, here we go again. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if by one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more those who will receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Don't you love that phrase, the abundance? It wasn't just enough to cover, was it? It was the abundance of his grace, the bounty of heaven. Let's get to the end. So verse, six, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, there, there is a lot to unpack. There is. And I did uh, give us that warning as we began, that this was like the, the 5,000, the 10,000 view perspective on what Paul is really unpacking and unveiling. And we could literally write volumes on this one passage. But here's the point for us this morning. He's given us this personal application. He's saying we were weak, we deserved nothing. Whilst we were still sinners, God 
died for us. He talks about humanity. He's talking about sinners spread like a cancer. But although there was disobedience, in came the obedience of Christ. But although there was death, there came the life. And here's how it came. Gift, gift, gift. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It didn't matter how bad humanity got. There was the grace of God available to sinners. doesn't matter how bad any of us have wandered and departed in rebellion against the holy God. There is his grace. doesn't matter how dark things get. There's not a moment where God says, oh, well, that's, that's past the line. His, his, his grace is available. The more sin and wickedness spread, the more his heart was moved with compassion to offer grace upon grace upon grace. Now, he is a holy God, and you're thinking, well, what about judgment? Next week. Come back next week, all right? For the moment, we're just basking in the grace, and I I realize it's an intentionally and a uh, necessarily unbalanced in some way message. But that is the point of Romans chapter 5. To the degree that we should ask that question, well, it's almost like we should just keep on sinning. Because it doesn't matter where we go, there is His grace available and applicable to sinners. Now, it doesn't lead us to more sin. Can I make that point clear? And we're going there next week, so please come back. But what is grace? What is this place that we stand in? Grace is gift. See, there is, to quote the great theologian Switchfoot, there is a new way to be human. One of my favorite ever rock bands. In fact, they were recently touring. I'm very glad that there's still some decent musicians visiting our shores, unlike Harry What's-His-Face. And <laughs> I hope that hopefully Catherine is listening to this sermon later. But there is a new way to be human. There is this shapes everything. This is the place from which all of Christian life is lived. And it is a place called grace. It is a place called gift. It is a favor bestowed upon us, receives the very definition without any merit. As a new epoch, as a new way to be human, which begins with the reign of grace. So really, Paul is saying, because he's unpacked theology and theological truths, and he's like, this is how you know, not that you've got it intellectually, this is how you know it's grabbed a hold of you. Are you living in that place called grace? Are you living under the reign of grace? And you say, well, what does that look like? What does that mean? I'm glad you asked that question. Let's continue. Be true with a show of hands. How many people under, say, the age of 45 here have seen the great classic movie, Chariots of Fire. Under the age of 45, some probably need a... Okay, there's a few. There's a few hands going up. There's some of those classics, isn't it, that if you're an older generation, it was just required watching. I remember coming across that movie, watching it many times, loved it. Um, j- just a great movie. If you haven't seen it, uh, go and watch it. There's something about those old movies, isn't it? I think you get a bit more nostalgic as you get older as well, and... But in this movie, there's two runners. There's this guy, Eric Little, and he is uh, 
a runner, he's heading to the Olympics, and there's this one scene, a very well-known, prominent scene, as he's getting ready for the race, and he's copped a bit of criticism from even his own family, saying, well, what are you wasting your time running for? Like, surely you could do something more meaningful with your life. Surely there's something else you can do. And, and he says to them in this scene, he says, this is the reason. I know that God has created me for a purpose. And if you know this line, you'll know where I'm going exactly with this. He says, I believe God has made me for a purpose, and he has made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Remember that line? Great line from the movie. Why do I run? I run because God has given me this gift, and as I enjoy his gift, I feel his pleasure. Wonderful, wonderful phrase. And then, of course, you have his arch rival, a guy by the name of Harold Abrahams, and there's this scene as he's getting ready for the race too, and he's having a... I think it's a sports massage, kind of get in his peak condition. And he has this steely look in his eyes. And he says this, as you know, he's preparing himself mentally and physically, he says, well, here's what's going to happen. The gun will go off. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. Interesting contrast, isn't it? I run because I enjoy the good gifts of God and I feel his pleasure. Or I run because I've got 10 lonely seconds to justify. I see, there's a contrast there. I think so often we live between these two tensions. All around us, we see in the world and so often we see in the church this misnomer. As we seek peace, as we pursue happiness and the desires that are around us, that in order to find what is good, it must be found and earned. you just got to run this race for you. You've got to live for your pleasure. You've got to strive for that which can justify your existence. It's found and earned. But there is something fundamentally different for us as believers that shapes everything we do. And I said everything is good is not found and earned. Everything that is good, is the good gift of a generous giver. From the beginning, we see this God who creates, and he says, as he creates and he makes, he says what? This is good. This is good. This is good. He is the one who bestows and proclaims that which is good. So how is it that we run? Do we run enjoying the good gifts of God, feeling his pleasure? Or do we run with the 10 lonely seconds to justify our existence? Let me phrase it another way. See, as we come to worship, we've sung songs, we turn to the Lord's scriptures. What is our motivation in coming? Is it to celebrate what we can do and what we must do? Sometimes it can be. I would say the exact opposite is the case. We come to celebrate what he has done. To hear his works proclaimed to be renewed in his covenant of love. See, as we, as we come to worship, we come to let him do his work. We leave with our eyes filled anew with wonder, our ears full with his good news, our hearts filled with praise, our souls filled with joy. See, you live differently and you run differently when you live from that place. There's a, a commonly um, exercised thing in more traditional churches and that's to finish the service with a benediction. We've kind of gone around and uh, 
sometimes we end up with a benediction of sorts, but I think it's a, it's a wonderful moment as we gather together to worship, as that posture before the Lord as we leave is to receive afresh His blessing to run. And I use one of my favorite passages, John 24. I, I read it over us and proclaimed it over us during communion. I think it was last week. The book of Jude, in, this, in the midst of this, this urgent appeal to believers to contend for the gospel. You're surrounded by difficulties, but he leaves them with this charge. Let me read it again. I know I read it last week. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. It's an amen moment. Here's another one, just in case that one didn't stir your soul enough. But allow this exhortation that Paul gives in Thessalonians again as he encourages the believers in the midst of trials and difficulties. But he says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You see, you run differently. If we come and we receive the good works of Christ, hearts filled, fresh joy, eyes set again firmly upon Him, then it impacts and affects the way we run. So often I think we've done a bad job in the church and we've helped people rather fall back into works, into what they need to do. Church becomes your list of requirements. It becomes another, another brick in the back sack. But we come to church ourselves justifying ourselves or not justifying ourselves because, well, I've had a good week this week. I've done my devotions. I've you know, been kind to people or vice versa. How many times, I won't ask for a show of hands, do we fall into the trap or like, you know, some bad things happened this week. It must be because I'm not tithing enough. It's clearly because I'm... A, like there's, there's this part of us, isn't there? There's some lost in translation moment that moves us from this place at times of receiving his free gift of salvation and saying, thank you, Lord. Appreciate that. Now I've just got 10 lonely seconds to justify my own existence as I work this thing out. and What are you striving for? Striving to earn that which he has already given. You see, we forget that there's a God who looks at the deepest, darkest sin, not only of our life, but as Paul says, of all humanity. You look at whatever you think, the most depraved moment, most depraved individual, nothing there is beyond the reach of His grace. We need to receive it. But the more sin abounded, even more again, His grace abounds to us. It's almost like we should keep on sinning, but we don't. Come back next week and you'll find about how this shapes a passion to live in holiness. But for this morning, we're going to bask in that reality of a gracious and good God and His great gift of grace to us.
Though sin reigned through death. This is the new day and the new era. That's an era marked by the reign of grace. Can I get the worship team back up here? Sort of bring this to a, a close this morning in a certain way. So you can posture yourself however you'd like. But let's just turn our attention to the Lord. If you want to just close your eyes, you're welcome to do that. But I, I feel like this, this is my heart this morning for us. I had this moment with um, a couple of my kids. And we currently live out of town on a property. But prior to that, we lived in a, a house down south side. One of my favorite things to do, in fact, this is one of the things I probably miss the most since we've made the move is all the bike paths. I mean, Canberra, we are blessed with some good bike paths everywhere. But we had some great paths literally out the front door of our house. And it used to be a regular thing. Mondays was always my day with uh, the kids. My wife worked, so it was dad and kids day, and we'd go for a bike ride. I remember this one moment that I'd, I'd bought one of my girls a brand new bike. She'd learnt to ride. We'd taken the training wheels off. And it was that moment, it's a proud moment as a parent, where you go out and you buy them their first brand new shiny sparkly bike. So we were excited to take this bike for a ride. We headed out the door. It was a lovely bike. It just had one problem. The problem was the handlebars could rotate 180 degrees and you couldn't really notice to look at it any difference until you hopped on it and you tried to ride. And then it was riding with the brakes halfway clamped on. And so we headed off on this ride, and I think at the moment I had a, a child on the back, and she was old enough to be able to ride herself, so we launched up. I thought, we'll take on the hill first of all, and the, the uphill section, and then come back on the downhill, and headed halfway up the hill, and I looked around, and I saw her, and she's got tears in her eyes, and I was like, sweetheart, quickly came her back, I said, what's wrong? And she's like, Dad, my bike's not working, and she wasn't even riding it. She was off the bike, and she was determined, and she was pushing this thing. She was lugging it up. She's carrying it up the hill. And I said, sweetheart, why didn't, you, why didn't you call me? Why didn't you tell me something was wrong? She's like, well, Dad, I just thought this was the way it was supposed to be. just thought this, was, this is the new bike you've given me. Thanks very much. Welcome to adulthood. There's some lesson here and, you know, you've got to carry your bike up the hill. I said, sweetheart, that's not how it works at all. Let me show you. We untwisted the handlebars, gave up um, uphill, sent her downhill and wind in her hair, the biggest smile. And I'm like, that's how it works. And I think as believers, sometimes that's a picture of our walk with the Lord. We get things back to front. Somehow this gift of grace becomes... The bike that we've got to carry on our back and lug up the hill. It's another stone in the backpack. We live exhausted. And then we wonder why there's no joy and there's no peace and there's no victory in this life. You see, there is a key to living in victory. To living in the power and promise that we find in Christ. And it begins as we learn to live in this place called grace. I do. It's, it's not just pastoral exaggeration, but I have this stirring that God's doing a new and a fresh thing. And I've discovered it's far more effective one moment doing things His way. You know, you can fish all night doing the best that you can do, pulling in nothing, trying all the tricks of the trade. One moment in His kingdom saying, hey, just come and follow me. Just 
let me just untwist those handlebars. Let me get this thing right. And all of a sudden, it's wind in the hair and we're sailing. All of a sudden, it's a, a boat full of fish. We're going to call others to come and help us. Come on. God's doing a new thing. There's so many fish here. We've got to get everyone here just to pull them all in. And that's the picture of the kingdom. So I don't want you just to close your eyes for a moment now because I want to ask you this. We're, we're on this race, this race called life. Where is it that you see yourself? Do you see your, yourself in, the, in that place of, man, God's purpose is so evident. And I'm just receiving his good gifts, rejoicing in them. And as I run, I feel his pleasure. I love that the wind's in the hair. We're sailing downhill. No matter what's around, there's unstoppable joy, peace, purpose. Or are we in that other place of struggling up the hill, the push bikes on the back, this is just the way it's supposed to be. After 10 lonely seconds, a few miserable years, just to somehow justify my existence. Working all night. Just the way it is. What's well, not the way that he desires it to be? He wants to invite us this morning afresh to live in that place called grace. And I want to read for you, just with your eyes closed again. I want to proclaim over you these benedictions. Maybe that just as you sit, just posturing yourself with your hands open. Something super spiritual about that. Sometimes it's a way of saying, Lord, here I am. Just ready to receive your blessing this morning. And as this is proclaimed over us, my prayer this morning is that he would move us back into that place where there's a fresh wind in the sail, where we're roaring down hills where we're pulling the fish without measure into the boat, just knowing the victory, the peace, the joy, the life that he offers. Because we're standing firm again in that place called grace. 1 Thessalonians, it says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who called you before you were even in your mother's womb. He is faithful. He will surely do it. Jude says this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever. May the Lord bless you. May He keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 
And I pray, Lord, that those words would resonate in our hearts in a fresh way, that we'd run with a new passion, receiving and rejoicing in your good gifts. And as we run afresh, feeling anew the passion and the pleasure of our Father. We are set in Jesus' name. And I pray, Lord, there be capacity where there is some of us. The picture is more like the, the little girl, tears in their eyes, bike on the back, struggling uphill. In your tender mercies, Lord, would you come down? Would you clean us up? Would you get us untwisted? Set us afresh to roar down with childlike enthusiasm and faith. Your hills of grace, we pray in Jesus' name.